you back to your seats. One of the great blessings of this summer for me personally, and I do believe for our church, um, has been the addition of John Stevenson to our staff. Um, I'm really thankful for his friendship and for his partnership in the gospel over this last summer. Um, for those of you that don't know him, this is a great introduction. Um, this is his first time preaching for us. Uh, John is in his, really the last two semesters, is that right? The last two semesters of seminary. And, um, and so he's, he's, he's a great mind. But um, for those of you that don't know John, and, and I'm, I think he's going to talk about this in his story, but John was a, a medical doctor, a hand surgeon, for eight years. Is that right? I was in practice for three and a half. Practice in three and a half. But I mean, I mean the whole resident, that's a whole other world. The whole doctor world is a strange thing. Um, <laughs> I, the doc, and I'm glad that doctors work really hard to, to become doctors. I don't want a doctor who doesn't know what he's doing operating on me. And so, um, but um, John was diagnosed with epilepsy and had to give up his um, medical career because of it. But God has called him now to the ministry, and we are the beneficiaries of that. And uh, I'm very thankful for that. And I'm thankful for your partnership. So. Um, with that being said, I want to invite him to the stage and let him take over uh, for the preaching of God's Word. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, I hope you do too. Thanks, John. All right. Well, well thanks, Dan. Um, this is not for me to follow scores. This is for me to stay on time. Um, I used to get an hour to two hour lecture blocks, so y'all don't want that. Um, so we're... Uh, so I'm, uh, I'm, yeah, everybody's got somewhere to be. So this is for me to, to make sure that I don't veer off into, into too many things. Um, so as you all know, uh, last week Dan started us on, um, on, on a short series in the Psalms where he just said, pick your favorite Psalm and, and then preach on it. And this is the first one that immediately came to my mind, Psalm 136. I, I love this Psalm and we'll get into why I love it. And specifically, what I love is the Hebrew word for steadfast love. Um, this one is part of a collection of psalms known as the Hallel Psalms, H-A-L-L-E-L. -L -E -L. And it's obviously where we get our word hallelujah. Um, but translated from Hebrew, it means praise thou. And this one is known as the great Hallel. Um, and we know from Old Testament times that um, the, these were to be sung. Uh, specifically, this psalm, as you see in your bulletin, has a line, and then the second portion of that was, For his steadfast love endures forever. And the Levitical priests were responsible for leading the congregation in the singing of this psalm. Uh, it was sung in homes on the eve of the Passover during the Feast of the Tabernacles. It was sung on each of the eight days uh, in the temple as the animals were being slain uh, to be offered as sacrifices. And so it's been said that the repetition and the response of this psalm allows the gathered worshipers to reflect and ponder on each of the descriptive phrases. And after I told Dan that I wanted to do this one, we, we had a discussion about, okay, how should we read this? Should we break it up? Should we do it at the end? Should we do it at the beginning? Should we just read the 26 verses and know that his steadfast love endures forever is in, in the middle of all those? Or should we turn back the clock way back to the BC era, and should we do this as the psalm was intended to be done? And as a church that doesn't apologize for holding to 
the authority and the centrality of the Bible, we thought we would do it as it was intended to be done. Now, I know a lot of you right now are thinking, oh my goodness, we're going to do all 26 verses of this with that refrain of his steadfast love endures forever between each of them. And I can feel a little bit of that tension right now. We're in this immediate information world. We want to get to the information as short as possible. The notification pops up on your phone. That's all I need to know. So-and-so was arrested. So-and-so signed with the Yankees. So-and-so was traded. Antonio Brown um, doesn't want to wear his helmet. You know, these, these short things like that. So, so we recognize and we know that our modern minds are not trained to do this. But the repetition of this psalm is the key to this psalm. So if you would pull out this insert in your bulletin, what we're going to do is I'm going to read the numbered lines. So 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, so on. I can count, or at least I can read the numbers. And as I pause, we as a congregation are going to respond together for his steadfast love endures forever. And that's the asterisk in bold at the bottom of that. So, let's start and let's read God's word. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. For his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. For his steadfast love endures forever. To him alone who does great wonders. For his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens. For his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters. For his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights. For his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day. For his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and stars to rule over the night. For his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt. For his steadfast love endures forever. And brought Israel out from among them. For his steadfast love endures forever. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm. For his steadfast love endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea in two. For his steadfast love endures forever. And made Israel pass through the midst of it. For his steadfast love endures forever. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea. For his steadfast love endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness. For his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down great kings. For his steadfast love endures forever. And killed mighty kings. For his steadfast love endures forever. Sihon, king of the Amorites. For his steadfast love endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan. For his steadfast love endures forever. And gave their land as a heritage. For his steadfast love endures forever. A heritage to Israel his servant. For his steadfast love endures forever. It is he who remembered us in our low estate. For his steadfast love endures forever. And rescued us from our foes. For his steadfast love endures forever. But he who gives food to all flesh. For his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heavens. For his steadfast love endures forever. Thank you. For most of the city, school started back this week or, or is starting this week. And one of the things that I've always heard as I've gone through school is repetition is the key to learning. Now, I, I would argue with that, and most educators would argue with that and say that understanding is the true key, is the true key to learning before you re repeat things. Uh, when, when I had to retire a couple years ago, I decided I've got to do something with my life. And one of the things I decided to do was to start taking tennis lessons. 
and because uh, I thought it seemed like something that would be be fun, run around, get break up, work up a sweat, and I could hit shot after shot. Somebody just feeding me the ball, and I hit it, and it fly all over the place. But that repetition doesn't do any good unless I understand what I'm doing with that shot. So if I want to hit topspin, how do I want to hold my grip? You know, where do I want my feet planted? How do I want my shoulders turned if I want to hit one down the line and so forth? And many coaches, and if you listen to any commentary on tennis, will tell you that tennis really starts from the ground up. It's about your feet. If your feet aren't right, it doesn't matter what your arm is doing, which is what I always tend to think about. It's where your feet are planted. And so it's having that foundation to hit the right shot in tennis. If you have the right foundation, if you have the right fundamentals, if you understand what you're doing, then the repetition becomes valuable. But I think it's the same way with Scripture and applying the attributes of God. We can talk about the attributes of God all day long. We can repeat them to ourselves. God's holy, God's just, God's righteous, God is love, and so forth. But if we don't understand God's attributes and understand them, it's repetition, like hitting a tennis ball without understanding what we're doing. We all grew up with the song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And that is a great song to teach young children. And that's a great thing to have them repeat and to learn. But I'm afraid many Christians are still stuck in that phase of, Jesus loves me, this I know. We say that we know that God loves us, yet we don't understand the intensity and the depth of God's love for us. So this psalm's repetition helps us to learn by saying that phrase, his steadfast love endures forever 26 times. But each thing that comes before that gives us a peace to help us understand God's love. And that's what I love about this psalm is the repetition and understanding that both of them work together in these 26 verses to create an indelible memory about God's love. And so that's my argument this morning, is that we don't receive God's love fully because we don't fully understand God's love. We know several Bible words for love. We hear in the New Testament all the time talking about the difference between eros, phileo, and agape. And we've probably all heard dozens of sermons on that. But the word here translated steadfast word is the word that if I ever got a tattoo, this would be the word that I have tattooed on my body. And that word is hesed, H-E-S-E-D. And that's what's translated as steadfast love. In other translations, it's translated as mercy. In this passage, it's translated as loving kindness. But there really is not one equivalent English word or word of any other language that can capture the full meaning of that. There's been a Jewish scholar that defined hesed as a free-flowing love that knows no bounds. Others have tried to stack words to it to, to encompass its whole meaning. An enduring, unfailing, eternal covenant love. And it's intimately connected to the covenant that God made with his chosen people, Israel. Now, if we remember, especially with Abraham, it was a unilateral covenant, meaning that God initiated the relationship. God sustained the relationship. God chose the participants of that relationship. I had a professor of Old Testament, um, Dr. Allen, who helped translate many of the Psalms in the New King James Version. And his contention was that next to the covenant name of God, Yahweh, that has said is the second most important word in all of the New Testament. 
And so I've just become enamored and love this word. And so if you look for the places in the Old Testament where this is represented, you see the intensity and the depth of, that this word has in describing love. It's why God can say in Jeremiah 31.3, as the kingdom of Judah, the southern tribes are about to be taken into exile, that he can say, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. So even in exile, even what looked like defeat, God's love for his people would continue on and on through his faithfulness. And so as we break down this passage, I see four things that help us to understand God's love. And number one is his person. Number two is his power. Number three is his provision. And number four is his promise. First of all, it's God's person. And I would claim that his said is rooted in the character of God. His said is rooted in the character of God. A.W. Tozer, who I think is one of the greatest Christian writers, many of you have probably read his books, um, wrote what, what's a very famous quote, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the single most important thing about us. He then goes on to add, The gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most important fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. The way I grew up may be the same that many of y'all grew up in church, is the picture I had of God in my mind was God like a school teacher. And so God was up there, he was giving lectures to us through the Bible, through sermons, and I had to pay complete attention. And if I wasn't wrapped up in attention with this, then God was going to come by or somebody was going to come by and kind of slap my hands with a knuckle, or as my dad sometimes did, kind of tap me on the back of the head in church and tell me to pay attention. And I had to do all the assignments that God gave me perfectly. I had to read my Bible every day. If I didn't get through it in a year, then, well, you failed. Uh, if I didn't pray for this long in a day, uh, failed. And so I had to do all the assignments perfectly for God to love me and to do the right things for God. If I didn't, just racked with guilt. So I either had punishment or reward based on the things that I did for God. But that is completely antithetical to grace. That is not how we've learned grace, as Paul said it. As believers, there is nothing you can do to make God love you more. And as a believer, nothing you can do to make God love you less. Verse 1 plainly tells us that God is good. It's an essential part of his character. That's just who he is. God is good. He cannot not be good. Now, that doesn't mean that everything that happens and everything in this world is good. God pronounced his original creation prior to sin as very good. But you and I live in a world that is marred and corrupted by sin. And so things around us are not necessarily good. But God, who's ruling over all of it, is good. That is who he is at his character. Verses 2 and 3 further explain, and when I was reading this, and as many of you read this, God of gods and Lord of lords. It seems very much the same to us in English. So as I was digging through this, um, verse 2 in the Hebrew uses Elohe ha Elohim. And the way the Israelites viewed this in the Hebrew language was to note, denote Yahweh's supremacy over other foreign gods and deities. So their God was the God alone over all the other gods that were out there. In verse 3, Lord of Lords is Adonai Baronim, 
which denoted Yahweh's power over the physical realm and the spiritual realm. And if you think back to Ephesians a few weeks ago, we were talking about this spiritual battle. So we have the Lord of Lords over everything that's in the physical and spiritual realms. In other words, God is the sovereign ruler over everything. There's nothing that takes him by surprise, and there's nothing that's out of his control. Now, I know that there probably is a question for some of you that, okay, if God is good, and God is the sovereign ruler, the great, physical, the great um, question that exists out there, then why did this happen? Why does God allow hurricanes to happen? Why does God allow cancer to happen? Why do all these things go on? And as Dan alluded to, this is something I've struggled with personally, and, and I really still do. Uh, as Dan alluded to, some of you know my story, some of you know parts of it, and some of you are wondering why Dan gained about 35 pounds this week. Um, but um, Dan mentioned that um, you know, I was a professor of hand surgery at UAMS and Arkansas Children's Hospital. And at three and a half years into my career, things were sailing. I had all the certifications I needed to have. Um, I was starting to be invited to speak at national conferences. I was writing textbooks. I was doing everything that I basically could at that point in my career. I had had a couple of seizures six or so years prior to that. Both of them were when I was sleeping and everything checked out. The neurologist thing was, well, sometimes it happens at that age. You have a couple of them at night and you'll never have any again. So I started some medicine and feeling great. And then in clinic, I started having these things toward the end of the day where it was kind of an out of body experience. So I kind of looked down and be like, huh, that's weird. I'm looking at my hand move. That's really, really strange. And I would hear people talk, and it was kind of this Charlie Brown wah, wah, wah kind of thing. And it happened a couple times, and I was like, eh, I'm just tired. It's a long day of clinic. And then it started happening a little bit more frequently. And so since seizures and surgery don't go well together, um, I pulled myself out of practice and saw my neurologist the next day. And I knew what he was going to tell me. And I went in knowing that, and he told me, we got to, no, you can't go back. And so that afternoon, I called the people that I had surgery scheduled for the next day. It was, by this point, it was about 6.30 at night. And so I called them like, hey, I, I can't do your surgery the next day. I'm going to have to cancel. And I was devastated, crying, sitting in my office up at UAMS, didn't know what to do. My wife was devastated with me. Um, she was still at work um, and just sitting there lonely in my office wondering what was going to happen. So for six months I was out. I tried multiple medications, went up to the maximum on medications. Medications were changed around and it came to the point where they said you can't do surgery anymore. And I loved operating and I loved teaching residents. It's the thing that got me up every morning. It was my passion. It was what I lived for. And on that night, December 19th, 2016, all went away. And I knew in my mind that God was good. And so as I was sitting there in my office, I was thinking, God's good all the time. And I could repeat that over and over again. But it came to the fact that, all right, here's where the rubber meets the road, John. Do you really believe this? Do you truly understand this about me? And as time has gone on, I've, I've started to discover a little bit more and a little bit more of what God's doing in my life, but I still don't know the full thing. And I'll admit, there are times I'm still angry about it. 
of, of why did you take this from me? This is what I had spent 14 years of my life training to do, and I spent three and a half years getting to do it. You took from me, next to my wife, the thing I loved doing the most. And I'll admit, I can't go up to UAMS without crying. I can't walk in the door. I can barely see people that were my coworkers because it still hurts. But I know that I have a good God who's sovereign. And so, is epilepsy a good thing? No. Is God good? Yes. And can God take something that is bad and turn it into something good? Absolutely. So, verses 1 through 3 tell us, it's what's in the first thing of each verse, 1 through 3, is to give thanks. Give thanks in the good, in the bad, in the ugly, in the uncertain, in the messiness of life. Because goodness and sovereignty are the character and the defining thing, things of God. So we give thanks and we trust. So the second thing that shows here is in verses 4 through 9 is God's power. God shows his said and his creation. Many times in the Old Testament, the sun and the moon were used to bear witness to the greatness of God, the heavens that he laid out, the earth, and all those things. Other nations did the same. They had their own deities for these things. They had a rain god. They had a moon god. They had a sun god. That They thought if they worshipped and did things in the right way, they could manipulate those deities to help them in a certain way and to act on their behalf. And as I was reading this, I was thinking, how often do we really think about God's creation? And that we marvel and we think about that. We look around, and, and sometimes it's in the big things. We'll see a particularly nice sunset, and we'll think of the, about the power of God. Um, sometimes it's the diversity of animals, the beautiful thing of when we see a sunset in a forest and we take a picture of it. For me, it's always been in the small things. So when I started studying college, it was molecular biology is what really drew me. The complexity, the irreducible complexity of how these things work together. And seeing electron microscope pictures of these things, it just draws your mind to the fact that there is no way that this just happened. That all these sequence of things just happened to come together in some random soup for this to be as precise as it is. The hand to me is one of those things. Just straightening your fingers. The anatomy that goes into doing this. It's not just ropes connected to a muscle. It's, it's tendons connected to bands, connected to ligaments, connected to all these things. It's interconnected. And if any portion of it's damaged, it's never the same again. The balance is lost. But there's a word that I want to focus on in verse 5, and it's who by understanding made. Emphasizing the forethought, the planning, the pattern, the detail, that God knew exactly what you and I needed even before we needed it. And if that's true in the majesty of the creation of the sun and the moon and the large things, then it's also true in our personal lives. Jeremiah 1.5, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Psalm 139, 14, I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Verses 17 through 18, How precious are your thoughts to me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I should count them, they are more in number than the sand. How often do you think about the fact that God thinks about you? We're supposed to think about God, but God thinks about us. And to me, that's just an amazing thing. We have a transcendent God who's over everything, who rules over everything, who made everything, but yet he's also close and present with us. Jeremiah 23, 23, Am I only a God nearby, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? 
Psalm 8, 4, what is man that you are mindful of him? The beauty of God's revelation and creation is that the God who made it all is also right here with us. He lives and he dwells with us through the Holy Spirit that he sent, that we receive its salvation. So how do we respond to verses 4 through 9? We bow down to our Creator, but yet we also take comfort in Him. We rejoice in the beauty of God's majesty and all the things that He made. We delight in the abundance and the beauty of His creation. But I would say that most of all, we worship both in the large and in the small, and we take comfort in the understanding and the nearness of God. Point three there is in God's provision that has said is represented by His salvation. Throughout the Old Testament, God's representation and introduction to himself is often prefaced with, I am the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who brought you forth out of the land of Egypt. And these represent many of the covenants that God made with his chosen people of Israel, a people he purposefully loved. He initiated that love. He sustained that love, even though they were completely undeserving of that love. Deuteronomy 7 says, For you are holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from Pharaoh, the king of Egypt." In the recital of these verses from Psalm 136, those 13 verses, the psalmist records the most pivotal event and the most referenced events um, from the exit of Egypt and the provision in taking the land. And this represented God's ability to save his chosen people and their distress. And as we know, this was marked by a very bumpy road, 40 years in the wilderness, difficulty in taking the land, bad kings, idolatry, and so forth. But God always raised up a deliverer whenever they needed him and when they turned back to God because his love was there. The Passover was the most holy and celebrated time in Israel's history because it pointed back to the miraculous deeds of God, but it also pointed forward to their future promise, the Messiah who would come, who would be their king, who would be their savior, who would be their deliverer. It is highly likely, based on the Passover, that Christ sang this psalm throughout the Passover and even a few hours before his death, where God's ultimate display of his said would result with Christ taking our place and dying on the cross. That the undeserving people of Israel, that those undeserving outside of Israel, would have Christ as our Passover lamb. His said is also then said to be an action. It recognizes an act to relieve an urgent need on the part of the recipient. It's just not something nice that you can do. It refers to a deep and enduring commitment between the parties involved. It's performed for a situationally weaker person by someone who is stronger. It's a voluntary, extraordinary mercy or generosity, a going beyond the call of duty. The significance of reciting these events was not lost on those who participated in the corporate singing of these psalms. Again, it pointed to past fulfillment and a future promise. It pointed to a new and greater covenant based on his sin. We all love to tell stories. We love to talk about our latest golf exploits. We love to talk about what we're binging on Netflix, the new restaurant we went to, 
what our kids are doing, all those type of things. But how often do we rehearse the great deeds of God corporately or even just sit on our own and think about how God, good God has been in our own lives? I think it would change us if we did the same thing and we focused and we rehearsed on the good things God did for us. The basis of the covenant to God's people has always been faith. It was faith before the law, it was faith in the law, and now it's faith after the fulfillment of the law. The author of Hebrews writes this in chapter 3, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is written, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering in his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So our message for this in looking at God's deliverance and God's salvation is faith. It calls us to the primacy of faith in our relationship with God. Salvation is by grace through faith, is the completion of the promises that he made in the Old Testament. God did not, God chose to love Israel, and God has chosen to love us through the sending of his Son. And point four, God's promise, has said will be realized forever. There is still a future promise for Israel to be realized, and, and there will be for them. But for those of us who have been saved by grace through faith in Christ, we are still awaiting the final fulfillment of the promise. You see, we live in a stage of already and not yet. There's still a greater to come. There's a new covenant, a new heaven, a new earth, where there's no pain, no sickness, no death. The things that mar and we worry about in this world will be gone forever. This is one of the reasons this psalm existed, to remind those participating in the recitation of it of what was to come. And it reminds us of the same thing. God saw us in our lowest state of sin and saved us. He will ultimately defeat the final foe of death. He presently nourishes us spiritually as he reigns from heaven. Great promise was made by the prophet of Jeremiah. And and I want to read this passage because of the symmetry and the same words that are used from Psalm 136. In Jeremiah 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and stars for light by night. Depending on your point of view, we are fortunately or unfortunately entering another election season. And we have people who are promising everything. A lot of it they know they can't do. Some of it they never intend to do. Some of it has good intentions, but it's just not going to work. People have been making promises for 200 years and nearly all the time, no matter who your guy is or who your female is with a lot of them this year, you're going to be disappointed. But there is one who has never failed to keep a promise. And there may be times when you feel like God's forgotten you. I've I've been there. Where you're like, God, what are you doing? Where have you been? But God has fulfilled and will fulfill every promise that he has made. 
This passage ends with the same in, in, in the last verse with what it started with. And give thanks to our great God because of his steadfast love. As we wrap up, God reiterates his steadfast love, his has said, through repetition and backs it up on the basin of his, pers- his person, his power, his provision through the Exodus, our salvation, and promises something far greater. And so what do we do with this whole thing? We hope. We look forward to the day when all will be made right. We hold on to God's has said. God's has said for Israel did not fail and will not fail for us. Romans 8, I think one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So you see why has said is a beautiful word for me. One that has just become a constant thing on my mind. When times are rough, when times are good, when you know what to do, when you don't know what to do, recite God's has said. Remember his Hesed and claim Hesed as your own. The Hesed so powerfully demonstrated to Israel can be magnificently or quietly, but always powerfully demonstrated in your own life.